Welcome to WebRush, the weekly talk show that brings you stories of real-world development from industry experts and developers like you and me. Each week, Ward Bell, Dan Walleen, Craig Shoemaker, and John Papa find out what it takes to write, deploy, and maintain apps that stand up to the demands of the real world. And now, here are your hosts. Well, hello and welcome back to the WebRush podcast, where today we're talking about why you need JavaScript at all. Or maybe you don't, maybe, I don't know, maybe you do. Uh, <laughs> today, my guest is Chris Ferdinandi, and he helps people learn JavaScript and believes that there's a simpler, more resilient way to make things for the web. His developer tips newsletter is read by thousands of developers each weekday, and you can find it at gomakethings.com, which I think is one of the best URLs we've ever had on this show. Chris, welcome. Craig, thanks so much for having me. It's really, uh, really great to be here. It's awesome. So we, we talk a lot about all kinds of different web-related technologies. Um, we've gone on and on about so many different frameworks. And I know from even my experience that sometimes my thinking doesn't necessarily go directly towards solving problems by using some of these established patterns and frameworks, although it has informed me to help think better through problems. And I'm just curious, like you, you have this like message that you want to tell. Tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> great. So um, uh, it's funny, right? I teach people JavaScript and a big part of what, um, what I do is advocate for using less of it. Um, so uh, the thing with JavaScript, it's awesome. It can do so many things, um, both you know, platform natively and through all of the amazing libraries that people create and share. Um, but it's also the most expensive part of the stack uh, just by the scripty nature of it, it's the most fragile and likely to break. Um, when it does break, it tends to do so catastrophically. So, uh, you know, if the browser doesn't understand some CSS or HTML you've run, it just ignores it and keeps going. But if it hits some weird JavaScript, it's like, forget this, I'm out. And it's like, uh, you know, it just completely falls apart. Um, and so the kind of the the story i've been telling or the thing i've been talking about a lot over the last few years is that um our increasing reliance on javascript as developers as a community has been bad for the web the people who use the things we build and i also think a lot of um a lot of the story we tell ourselves around the developer experience of using these tools um is delusion that a lot of the kind of the tooling and the processes that we put in place aren't always um, better for us, but actually often result in a worse developer experience. Um, and so that's what I'm here to talk about today. Well, you know, I, one of the worst things that a podcast host can encounter is a guest who's not willing to take a stand. So uh, that's really cool that that's not the issue today. <laughs> We've got some bold claims to sort through here. So let, let, let's unpack some of this stuff. So, you know, using JavaScript frameworks is, is bad for the web and bad for developers. Um, why? Like, I, I have some thoughts on this, but I, I want to know how you get to that conclusion. Yeah, so that's the, that's the, like, the completely lacking nuance take. Obviously, there's, like, there's layers to this of onion course. that we can right. pull back. But if we're just talking, like, uh, you know, let's do some spicy takes here, right? Frameworks are bad. So um, 
so there's a there's a few reasons um uh from a end user perspective we are doing a lot of um a lot of html generation in javascript now and uh we talked about this just a few seconds ago but um when when javascript goes wrong it goes wrong fatally so if you're rendering your html with javascript and you have a bug in that JavaScript, you don't get the HTML. And we've all run into this where you hit like the white page of death where the JavaScript failed or the loading icon never goes away and you just don't get your content. So at a high level, we're creating user experiences that are more fragile. Um, one of the other big challenges with JavaScript libraries from a user experience perspective um, is that JavaScript is a lot slower to run than the other parts of the front end stack. Um, so a kilobyte of JavaScript is inherently slower than a kilobyte of CSS or HTML or JPEG. Um, again, because of the scripty nature and how browsers handle it, uh, when you're downloading it, like CSS, it's going to stop rendering from happening. But beyond that, uh, the browser will actually read the file twice. So it's going to compile all these bytes that are downloaded into a, a functional file. That's going to read through the whole thing, start to finish to make sense of it, do any hoisting, <laughs> whatever that it has to do. If you have you know, native imports running in your, uh, in your file, it's going to grab those additional uh, files and import them and try to make sense of everything. And then it starts executing. And so all of this creates a tremendous amount of lag in your uh, your UI rendering. Uh, and when we over-rely on JavaScript to do that, we end up creating these experiences that are substantially slower than um, if you know we just rendered our HTML the old-fashioned way. Um, so just to like kind of- dad used oh, to do it. Yeah. <laughs> HTML like right. that. <laughs> right, I, a lot of what I advocate for, honestly, I call it being a dev dinosaur. Like I'm advocating for some older, what some people perceive as maybe outdated techniques, but like to just underscore this here, right? Um, it's a few years old now, but back in 2019, uh, Zach Leatherman did this really interesting experiment where he took um, all 27,000 plus tweets that he had ever published and put them in one giant 8.5 megabyte HTML file. And then he spun up a second file that was a client-rendered React app with just one tweet in it. And the 8.5 megabyte <laughs> HTML file was about 200 milliseconds faster than the single tweet React app. Um, because HTML is just that much, just raw HTML is just that much faster than trying to do the same thing with JavaScript. So, you know, that's a, that's a big part of it. And we can, we can pause for a sec. Yeah, we can, we can dig into this. I have, I have some thoughts on the DX side too, but let's, let's unpack. So John, one of the things I like about AG Grid, which is a, a data grid component for the kind of complex uh, grid scenarios that we encounter all the time in enterprise apps. One of the things I really like about it is that it works for a variety of frameworks, Angular, React, Vue, or, or just vanilla JS. Does that ring a bell for you? Oh, it really does. There's all these different companies that I work with where they have no choice but to use a lot of these different tools because they have different teams working on them. So being able to port their code or share that code and that technical investment they have is really important to them. Yeah, well, it's important to us, uh, ideally, we're a consulting company. And, you know, we never know what our client's going to want to use, Angular, React, or Vue. But they're all going to need a grid. And it's great to be able to reach for uh, the one grid that works everywhere, AG Grid. You know, at any size company, too, because you could have these teams that maybe they only use one framework, but 
eventually they're going to switch to another one and be able to take that investment again and use it, reuse it is really nice. So if a multi-framework data grid makes sense to you, please go check out AG Grid at ag-grid.com. Mr. Ward Bell, who uh, decided to come a little late to the party, but of course we're glad he's here because I cannot even wait to hear Ward's take on this. And uh, so Ward, what we're talking about is only writing JavaScript without frameworks and why that is a better way to do it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if you want to get really spicy, I'm over here saying JavaScript bad, but I teach people JavaScript. Okay. So so this is where I want want to push you a little bit. Like, okay, so JavaScript is slower than raw HTML and, and CSS, right? So what though? Because the fact of the matter is, is there is only so much that you can do with HTML and JavaScript. The way I always try to position thinking in in someone's mind when I'm teaching them about web development is that HTML is structure, CSS is the the color, the look and feel, the style, right? And JavaScript is the logic. So if you remove, if you lobotomize our web applications, so what if they're a little bit slower if they're functional? Okay, so uh, great question. uh, so, um, yeah, I, there's a few angles here. So I, I think I might disagree with the idea that, uh, by removing, by removing libraries, you're lobotomizing them. Um, I, well, that was the, the no JavaScript angle, but yeah, yeah no, okay. and that's totally fair. So I, there's a couple of things here. So I'm not no JavaScript. I'm generally, um, uh, just enough JavaScript. And so one of the things I see our industry as just as a whole, we have a tendency to do now is just reach for JavaScript for everything, even when it's not necessary. It's one of those, like if you're a hammer, every problem looks like a nail kind of thing. So if you invest a lot of time in learning React, you're going to use that for all the things, including maybe just spinning up a blog, which would probably be better served with a different technological approach. Um, So for interactive apps, there are absolutely... Uh, lots of situations where you are better served with JavaScript than without. And there's certain things that you just literally can't do without it. Uh, No question. Um, I think the other thing here is we also have a tendency to grab, or the tools that won is probably the better way to describe this, like React, right? Um, The tools that won are large and tend to do a lot of things. And Oftentimes, we really, for what we're trying to build, need smaller tools that do fewer things well. And, you know, this isn't even really a good example of this, but I look at something like React versus Preact, which is a tenth the size, has a very similar API, is designed to be, in many ways, a drop-in replacement, uh, but it's a fraction of the size and um, actually does the core thing it's supposed to do faster, too, which is, uh, you know diffing and updating the UI based on state changes. Um, It does that orders of magnitude faster than React. Uh, I'm not saying never use these tools. I just, I want us to be more thoughtful about which ones we use and when and why. Come at me, Ward. What do you got? Well, you know, sometimes (laughs) what you have in front of you is a nail. And I have, uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, it would be better to hit it with a hammer than a sledgehammer, (laughs) but I'd rather hit it with a sledgehammer than hit it with my head. And so uh, that's kind of what it feels like. You know, like, 
<laughs> well, well, I, I just don't want to hit the nail in my head. I, you know, so maybe the hammer's a little, you know, maybe I, the sledgehammer is the preferable thing if that's what I, I know how to swing a hammer, sledgehammer. I don't really quite, I have a, a hammer handy, uh, but I'd sure like to drive a couple mm-hmm. of those nails in if you don't mind so I can build the house and move on. So there I am abusing the analogy, <clears throat> I but digging <laughs> <laughs> I'm just picturing you building a house with a sledgehammer. Is it really? <laughs> uh, hey, you know, you just tap it with that big old thing it's and you're going to get tired because it's a lot of mass to swing. <laughs> but it beats beating it with my forehead, which is going to drill a hole in my forehead long before the nail goes anywhere. Uh, okay, so enough of the analogy. I Digging into the root of this, though, Chris, is your... Well, I don't know if it's a fair say to call it assumption, but... Let's let's let me characterize it as assumption that uh, and I think Craig was going here, which is who cares? Why do I care if the tool is big or small or if, you know, and, and I'm not saying that there aren't circumstances in which one would care. But I think asking the question, do I care for this problem? is is the is the one that I strive for when I'm talking to my clients and they're spending money on me. Yeah, sure. So it's really easy to not care about this if you are on high-end equipment with a fast internet connection um, and you live in an area that's not prone to natural disasters. Um, if you uh, if any of those things are not true, suddenly the negative performance impact of using these larger tools becomes a lot more pronounced. So if you've ever been in a situation where you're trying to access critical information when the power's down and you're on a flaky 3G network uh, because you don't have good cell coverage where you happen to live, so you're not in like a metropolitan area, um, or you're on AT&T. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Or... I, could, I could see that, but I'm not right. If I'm writing a disaster relief software, this would <laughs> be a pertinent conversation. I'm not sure I'm... Um, shopping for shirts under that circumstance. It's not always just like disaster relief software, right? Like we have this, uh, we have this tendency in our industry to be like, well, you know, no one's going to die if we screw up. But, um, uh, you know, my, um, my friend Eric Bailey recently wrote an article about his experience trying to navigate a mental health website that was having some JavaScript issues where, uh, you know, the somewhere in this nested chain of API calls that it was making, uh, things were breaking. The loading screen never went away. Um, and it was a site that provides mental health services. And if he had been someone who was in a crisis, that could have had some pretty serious real-world uh, implications. Like, let's say he was suicidal and suddenly now he can't access the help he needs. I understand you're talking about buying shirts, and I get that. So if you want to make the purely economic argument here, um, performance differences of as little as one to 200 milliseconds can have pretty substantial impacts on people's likelihood to stay on your site and actually make buying decisions. Amazon has found that like literal performance changes of 100 milliseconds will impact the amount of traffic they get and how long people stay on their site. But you know, you know, you, you know, you know, Chris, that that particular one is addressed by people who are very JavaScript pro JavaScript. They do server side rendering to get the thing going. And then there's uh, like, um, um, why can't Craig, come on, we did a show with the man. He's a great friend of ours. Oh, uh, Mishko. Mishko. What's the name of his thing? <clears throat> quick, quick, 
which by the way it gives it gives the story away the name of the front you know so uh it's really slow right yeah, exactly, <laughs> Is that the... exactly. <laughs> it's i want to be quick but i'm not right mishko that gets into that question but i want to throw another thing at you let's take your mental health example and, and your explanation for why that didn't work which seems probable but also seems to have very little to do with whether it was written with javascript and everything to do with how it was architected end to end because it was unable to accomplish um its mission and uh we, you know with in terms of the apis and its use of bandwidth to get at data and stuff like that i mean it's not obvious that the issue there was the use of a javascript framework in fact one could argue i would argue that in screwing around with trying not to use a framework and putting the extra time that that requires, I might not get around to solving the much more fundamental problems of whether the site is going to work at all uh, or under the circumstances that I need it to. I just guess it, it it's fun, Chris, but <laughs> knock this stuff around. I'm not, you know, uh, but I just, I can't, I can't I, I get that there are cer- certain frameworks are clumsier than others and are more less performant than others, but they do so much to relieve me of tedium in development, uh, freeing me to deliver value that I know. And I know what happens when I don't do that. When I spend all my time trying to avoid using those in order to solve problems that are easily solved by a framework, and I never get around to building anything that actually works. So I'm having trouble with your thesis, but that's what makes a podcast. Yeah, that's fair. So there's a few layers here. There are situations where JavaScript is required um, and tooling can make that easier. But there are also situations where we use, whether it's a framework or not, JavaScript when we shouldn't. Um, So, uh, you know, so for example, we will often as an industry architect entire user interfaces from JavaScript when only fragments of those are actually dynamic, driven by some sort of state and need to be updated reactively. And in those situations, using JavaScript to render that UI is objectively always for the end user worse than using HTML. Like you could progressively enhance with the parts that require that dynamic interaction, frameworks, libraries, none at all. Um, but I, I think the kind of one one of the big pieces here is we use JavaScript when we shouldn't. There are things that are better handled by HTML. There are also absolutely things that require JavaScript. But for the things that don't, using JavaScript for them is worse than not using JavaScript for them. I'm talking myself in circles here, and I'm sorry. Do you have an example of that? Because I can't, I can't, I can't, you know, like most of the application frameworks we've kind of bandied around here actually have you write a fair amount of HTML only use the, 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 frame, the framework's job is usually to mediate between some data source and, you know, get something and to populate the parts of the HTML that are dynamic, but otherwise you pretty much are using straight old HTML and, and CSS to do the stuff that's pretty static in your dynamic application. So where is it that you, where is it that you see somebody using 
JavaScript to write the HTML instead of writing the HTML? Where do you see that? I actually wish I had uh, specific reference websites to answer this question because that would be great. I think anybody who's had the experience of browsing to a website and hitting that like never-ending loading icon can empathize with what I'm talking about. You know, I, if we're going to just name names here, and this is a bad example because they, they have a lot going on, but like something like QuickBooks, right? Um, or uh, an application like that, like that entire UI is rendered with HTML. Well, it, it kind of sounds like what, what you're advocating is, it's just to be thoughtful about what you're doing and not, not overkill, right? So, because anytime that... Oh, Craig, <laughs> throwing the lifeboat <laughs> out of the, the platitudes. Well, Throw, go ahead. Woo! Uh. <laughs> we got a wild word. No, but that's exactly it. It's, it's we, like, so... Ward, I hear you saying that when you build things, Ward, you write mostly HTML and then use the libraries for the stuff that's dynamic or state-related. And that's great. I have not experienced that as a universal truth of how we build things. In fact, more often what I see is people will build portfolio sites. I wanted to learn React, so now I've built my entire portfolio site in React, including the navigation and the blog articles and all that stuff. It's just, it's, it's driven by React. Again, it's not, it's not universal, but I don't think it's this kind of narrow thing that never happens either. Uh, it's something that I run into quite a bit. The other piece here is that um, I hear you saying that tools help you do a lot of things that would be hard without tools. And I'm not saying don't use tools. I'm saying be more thoughtful about the tools that you use. React is absolutely an amazing tool. It's an amazing tool for a very specific use case that 90% of what we build as an industry doesn't fit into. Um, and there are a lot of other tools that would do the same thing and that would do it better and more performantly. They would be better for the end user. Are you building a web application? Need to deliver it soon and don't have the people to do it? Maybe you're not sure your company has the skill set or experience to do it. And maybe we can help. I'm your host, Ward Bell, and my day job is building applications for companies like yours. I don't do it alone. I'm president of IdeaBlade, a consultancy that specializes in enterprise web application development. We're particularly strong in Angular, RxJS, NGRx Redux on the front end, and .NET and Microsoft technologies on the server. We're a small, tight-knit group of people handpicked by me for their expertise, experience, integrity, and team spirit. Maybe we can help you with architectural guidance and hands-on development. And if there's something we don't know, and in our field, really, there's too much to know, we can draw on our personal connections in the Microsoft RD, MVP, and Google GDE networks, as well as our international circle of really great developers, people we know and trust personally. If you've got a project that's keeping you up at night, shoot us an email at info at ideablade.com. That's info at ideablade.com. And now back to the show. I'll get off my hobby horse and I'll ask you, what is it that you actually do? <laughs> give me, give us a, an example of like, okay, here's my problem and here's how I would mm -hmm. solve it without using or minimizing my use of JavaScript and certainly not using a framework. And I end up delivering the, va the business value uh, and make it maintainable and, you know, hit some of the other 
non-functional requirements as well as uh, deliver, you know, uh, delivering something of economic value to my uh, customer. What is it that you have done um, successfully? Give us a give us some give us a feel good story here. Sure. Yeah. So 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 some examples, right? So um, you know, you've got something like let's say a um, like a form, right? So I people often grab grab React. I've even seen this. There's a one of the newsletter vendors. Um, their entire form is driven. They it includes it includes React and React UI or React DOM rather in the library for the newsletter signup form. And the only thing it's doing is a tiny state display to show the form was successfully submitted or, oh, there was a mistake here. And that entire thing could be handled, I'd argue, easier. Not just handled, but handled better, easier using some vanilla JavaScript and some really light DOM manipulation. Someone types in their email address, you you run that same check to say, is this a valid email address or not? And you fire it off, you get the response back, and you inject it into the DOM element. You could even render the HTML with vanilla JavaScript if you really want to. Um, I probably wouldn't, but you could. There are arguably valid reasons for doing that. But loading 30 kilobytes of minified and gzipped React just to do that one thing seems silly. Not only seems silly, it's, I'd argue, harmful to the end user. A lot of the examples I'm going to be using here of when I wouldn't use a state-based library, when I would just lean on platform-native JavaScript are probably more just like light DOM manipulation. Um, but, you know, something like a scroll spy script, I would not use React for that, um, where you kind of toggle classes on the navigation as a user scrolls down the page. If we're talking about expand and collapse components or tab toggle tabs, things like that, um, you absolutely can use React to do those things. They're by no means necessary. And if you're someone who really likes using battle-tested libraries, there are plenty of them out there that will you know, do that same thing for you. Where I think state-based UI and DOM diffing really shine is when you end up in situations where you have lots of dynamically generated content that you don't know ahead of time that is going to change based on user interaction. Some examples where I would actually reach for some sort of state-based UI library include things like, um, yeah, just kind of a random example here, right? But I've got an animal rescue that has a bunch of adoptable dogs. They change all the time. Maybe I'm even pulling that data from somewhere else like PetFinder or some third-party repository, displaying them on my site. And people want to be able to filter dogs by breed or size or age or something like that. Now you've got content that's dynamic and how it's displayed is going to change based on interactions that users make. I have done that with vanilla JavaScript. It's arguably, no, it's actually it's, it's almost objectively easier with state-based UI in many situations. And I would probably grab a tool for that. I don't know that that tool would be React. Um, I don't, no. I think there are better tools for that job than React, even though that is a tool that would benefit from some sort of state-based UI library. So you're saying you just go with Angular. <laughs> exactly, yes. Angu Angular, yeah. obviously the, the lightest weight, simplest to use of the UI framework. Amber, I think you should go to Amber then, maybe. Exactly. Because that's... Well, my my tool of choice. So the thing that I found that when I try to build stuff with just vanilla JavaScript, which I often like to do because I like to be able to solve problems just the way I'm thinking. And many times I'm just like, okay, I'm going to 
do X, Y, and Z. And I'm not thinking in terms necessarily of, of how our framework solves a problem. But then I get to the point to where I have to update the UI. And you know that's where developer ergonomics come into this in a big way because to Ward's point, like, I really don't need to be spending... You know, all this time, get out of the by ID and then, you know, watch for the change and update the thing and do all this stuff. And, 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 and that's like the bread and butter of all these frameworks. So, yeah, I don't have to go to the most heavyweight one. Um, but what I've noticed is that as I'm solving problems, like my natural progression is to go from, okay, I've, I've tooled out this thing as much as I can. Now I need to, quote unquote, make it grown up and then move into something to where I can now begin to gain speed rather than not speed, right? (laughs) (laughs) And that's when you grab quick. (laughs) Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. No, and I think that's a really fair way to to talk about it. Um, And I think there are certain dumb changes that are not particularly difficult to do. So like, I know this is a really overwrought example, but like form submissions is relatively easy to listen for form submissions and then make a couple of updates to the UI. Uh, if you're like, at, my jQuery roots are showing here, right? But if you're just like toggling some classes on some things, that's not particularly difficult. But when the actual content that's being displayed is changing, and to use another overdone example, like a to-do app, right? Like trying to do a to-do app with vanilla JavaScript starts off really simple and then gets complex really, really fast once you start layering all the different things that a user might want to do with those elements. They want to edit one of their items, mark it as complete, delete it entirely. Suddenly you've got all these different elements and interactions you're listening for and all these different UI states you need to be concerned with. And representing that as a JavaScript object and saying, make the UI look like this in these situations is much, much easier than trying to do that with vanilla JavaScript. No question. You know, so just to be clear, Ward... I'm not, I'm not arguing for never using fly, libraries. I'm saying that they are often overused and that when we do use them, there's a tendency to just grab React or just grab Vue when there are often other tools that are more situationally appropriate. And we'll do the same thing. Well, um, sorry, I know that's a nuanced take. We don't yeah, do that on yeah, podcasts. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you are pointing uh, to something that is true. I think, which is that uh, Ooh, a concession. I'm trying to find. Yes. I'm, I'm trying to find the love, man. I'm feeling, I'm feeling, uh, you know, generous today, <laughs> uncharacteristically. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, like, we do have to acknowledge, you know, acknowledge that these the frameworks come with a cost. I mean, just the whole build setup, and as much as they try and make it easy for you to just push a button and uh, have it all scaffolded out and all that. After you've done that, you still have a lot of stuff and you have to, man- you know, once you signed up for that, now you have to manage it and you have to deploy it and you have, and it's not easy to upgrade date it, And then you have to worry about somebody changing a library out from, I mean, you know, it comes, frameworks come with those challenges. So if I've just got a screen with a couple of text boxes in it and, uh, you know, something to display, uh, maybe, um, and I know what I'm doing and I don't have a big team that's going to make, it's too tiny to worry about anybody maintaining, you know, then sure. Um, why incur all of that cost? I, that's why, for example, 
Um, uh, I, I have a, um, arts organization that I write, do the website for, and it has some dynamic elements to it. And we use Wix. I deliberately picked Wix, which has React under the hood, but let's pretend it didn't. <laughs> It'll be our little It'll secret. It'll be our secret. No Don't tell anybody. Uh, but, you know, but, but uh, the, the whole point was I didn't need, I didn't want a professional to maintain it. I wanted, um, so I, I, you know, and it's mostly HTML and CSS and they provide a lot of that anyway. And, you know, again, I'm making a, a choice about the ergonomics and economics of maintaining something uh, that has, is relatively simple. And I don't, I, it would be fatal to have to impose upon non-technical people the obligation to maintain this vast structure of this infrastructure uh, uh, that goes with necessarily goes with using any framework. So I, I, you know, I buy I, I, that's kind of the impulse and I buy that impulse and it has a, it has a, a, a place uh, for sure. So, yeah, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll give you, I mean, it would be crazy for me to have written this arts organization <laughs> website in a, you know, hand rolled it in some framework. It would have been crazy for me to hand roll it in any, with nothing either. Uh, it would be, you know, cause it doesn't, it, it, it's a bad idea to hand roll it. It, be it belongs in the hands of something else. Related to what you're saying, Ward, I think the other piece of this is that, um, Developer ergonomics can be improved by these tools for a particular subset of developers, but not necessarily all of them. So if you're someone who's comfortable with command line and doesn't mind kind of digging into a package JSON to update some stuff periodically, the experience might actually be better for you. But if you're a earlier career developer or someone who's not particularly comfortable poking around in terminal all that much, or your focus is primarily on HTML and CSS, decisions to use some of these tools can actually result in a much worse developer experience for you. For sure. Um, I think one example where this really jumps out for me is uh, when WordPress first kicked off their, um, uh, their project to update their backend editor, uh, they decided to shift away from plain old PHP with some jQuery to using React. And um, uh, in the process of doing that, uh, they ended up creating a whole bunch of accessibility issues because the accessibility team that normally would go in and make these updates had no React experience uh, on their team, couldn't find anybody who wanted to volunteer that had that React experience. And so changes they would normally just go make themselves, they had to open tickets for. Uh, and in a team, again, you know, this is not just a tool thing. This is also a, an organizational issue. But uh, you know, the, they end up opening tickets for these things. The team is moving fast, trying to get something shipped by a target deadline. They push a lot of these accessibility fixes aside. And that's absolutely an organizational issue. But um, what ended up happening is when the initial rewrite shipped, um, they conducted an accessibility audit. And there was something like 90 pages of accessibility issues that got flagged in, in the report. Um, just hundreds of accessibility issues that could have been fixed if they had chosen a, a tooling setup on the back end that was a better experience for all developers on their team and not just a particular subset. Um, well, what if the engineers were more accessibly, accessibility minded from the beginning, though? 
Yeah. So that is absolutely an important part of it. Um, and uh, it's fair to say, I think the caveat I have here is that so much of accessibility is contextually based. And there's a lot of things that work. You know, you could say, hey, you know, this is better for accessibility, but that's true in a particular situation, but not for others. And it's true for people with particular disabilities, but not for others. And even people with the same type of disability have different kind of preferences and expectations around how things work, which is a really long-winded way of me saying that accessibility really is a specialty in and of itself. And I absolutely believe that developers as a whole should be better at it and more mindful of it. But it's still really important to have people that specialize in it, that do actual testing with actual... Right. You know, people with actual disabilities, uh, and then that type of feedback kind of circles back into the development team. Um, so, is your point that they miss? They miss uh, because it, these seem like your orthogonal issues to me. Like, if you cast your mind back to the pre-JavaScript when there was no, almost no JavaScript on there, those were not exactly the most accessible sites that have ever been built. <laughs> uh, they were, yeah, right, right. So, it's a kind of a different talent. Yeah, no, and for it, sure. I don't find that these these frameworks get in the way of accessible. Or, uh, you know, they, they're kind of like, in, you know, sometimes they're even helpful. Like, I know there are, I know Angular best of many of these, and I know that there are um, very specific uh, uh, attempts to make accessibility easier uh, as part of the framework. I don't know whether that's true of React or not. Um, but regardless, it's not, it's not what they, re, the, the, they seem to be two different problems. Uh, and I haven't noticed that without JavaScript, people are necessarily good at accessibility or responsiveness. So you're making an argument that, or you're, you're countering an argument that I was not making and that's fine. That's it's the a best really, way. It's another important conversation <laughs> that, I think, that I think we can have, but I, I was not saying that libraries make accessibility worse, although there is actually a lot of data to indicate that. Uh, there's maybe some correlation there, if not causation. The argument I was making is that when you choose a tool that works well for just people who have deep JavaScript expertise, other really important people on your development team who don't have that expertise are able to participate less meaningfully in that process, and that can have detrimental effects for end users. That's that's a that's a that's a that biasing is is a fair point, and I think. Um... Uh, then, then you can actually make an interesting argument that some uh, frameworks do a better job than others of separating the design um, aspects from the programmatic aspects, and therefore create a space in which non, not, you know, non-developer types can really work independently and without breaking. Um, what the developers do. I, I think that that's the idea behind templates, right? Uh, and frameworks that support, um, I, I have a templating concept so that the HTML is sitting over here and the code is over there and um, they don't step on each other. Um, you know, that was kind of, that's actually one of the features of Angular, if you will. You can say what you want about the framework. That was one of its um, core... <laughs> Uh, no, it was one of its it's one of its animating principles uh, was that the HTML is over here, the template's over here, and the code is over there, and somebody who really knows what they're doing can ignore the code and fo focus on um, the HTML uh, and really make that sing. While the people who are working on development can pretend that the template doesn't even exist except for where they have to plug into it. 
that kind of designer developer separation was core to it and would speak to what you're talking about. So yeah, I hear you. I hear you. So on the topic of kind of libraries and their ability to help or hinder accessibility though, because that is an interesting kind of aspect here. So just to clarify, there are a lot of situations where JavaScript is actually required for a properly accessible experience. So I see a lot of these like, uh, you know, look at this thing you can do with just HTML and CSS. And um, you don't, you don't have to worry about the, the, you know, JavaScript and messing around with all that. And those experiences are in many cases um, inaccessible. Uh, you know, so seeing people do things like, look, you can build like, uh, you know, these like, like accordion things using just just CSS and focus styles and things like that. And that creates a whole bunch of issues for screen readers. So I'm not, I'm not arguing for that. Um, but every year, the accessibility organization WebAIM does a survey of the top million sites on the web. And they do a big analysis for uh, programmatically detectable accessibility issues. So that's a really important caveat here. They're not manually auditing all of the sites here, they're just doing, uh, you know, automated like Lighthouse um, uh, or like WebEx style automated testing to catch accessibility issues. And they report on it. Um, and every year, surprise, websites are really bad at accessibility. Um, but one of the interesting sections on the page is where they break down um, the types of libraries that are used on these sites and how far from the um, the median, they vary in terms of number of issues detected. For a couple of years, pretty much every site that had a state-based UI library on it had more accessibility issues than sites that did not. What we've seen over the last couple of years is that there are a few libraries that have less accessibility issues than the average site that does not use a library. And one of those is actually React, which I'm not particularly surprised by because I feel like the React community has invested a lot of effort over the last few years in improving the accessibility a lot of, of a lot of the components of the core library itself um, uh, and the way it handles certain things. Um, uh, one of the most popular routers for React um, if you're someone who likes building SPAs, has a lot of accessibility features baked in, which is really, really helpful. Um, and so this is, I think, where the power of some of these tools to alleviate some of the accessibility issues that we have on the web, uh, there's, there's, just, there's a lot of potential there. Now, on the flip side, a typical site built with Vue.js, or sorry, of the top million sites surveyed, those that used Vue had more than 20% more accessibility issues than the typical site built without them. Um, uh, similarly, you know, AMP sites had a lot more accessibility issues, which is really painful to hear. Angular sites uh, had about 6% more accessibility issues than uh, a site built without any, any libraries at all. Um, I, again, this is not like a causation kind of thing. So like using React doesn't instantly make your site more accessible. Using Vue doesn't instantly make your site less accessible. Um, but what I, I find or what I've observed often happens with these tools is you get developers who grab them, they grab some ready-made components and jam them in, and how much of a focus the community and the people who maintain that core tool put on accessibility in those tools can have a really big impact on kind of the end results that are getting shipped with these things. Um, so not necessarily a core 
part of my thesis here. But since you brought it up, Ward, I thought it was an interesting kind of tangent to go down. Well, it's it's a really good dive into all that's at stake when you make these decisions. And so, you know, I'm really looking forward to uh, the job offers you get from Evan Yu and from Google and from Facebook. Um, <laughs> yeah, Chris, you're, you have a bright future in front of you, buddy. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm basically unemployable at this point, Ward. Exactly, and and we're we're working to help make you less employable than than ever. Uh, and uh, yeah, I so save your it. money, thank you, because um, that's what we do for people. Uh, <laughs> so on that note, what we like to do is end the show with a final thought. So, Ward, what do you got for us? Well, you know, I, I'm enjoying this whole contrarian thing Chris is trying to pull over here, and you know, uh, <laughs> and I find it refreshing. Um, actually, it's always refreshing to sort of revisit some. Uh, uh, heartfelt uh, commitments, uh, in you know, and uh, we may find that we uh, love those commitments even more as a result of it. But Chris, you're doing us a service in reminding us, well, you know, like why we do what we do. And so I tip my hat to you. That's my thought. So, um, I'm gonna, I, I'm going to ask. Well, I'm not gonna ask for. I'm gonna butcher the snot out of this quote, which was referred to by someone. So I listened to Alex Ramosi's podcast and he brings up a quote that he likes to, to think about a lot. And it's by someone I can't remember the original source was, but that is that oftentimes we question everything except for basically our base assumptions or the things that we don't even think to question. And to your point, Ward, I think that this is a really good conversation to have because even if we don't end up necessarily making different choices, at least we have a better understanding of why we make the choices we do. It must have been uh, Socrates who said that, Craig. Mr. Socrates himself. All right. (laughs) Socrates. (laughs) What do you got for us, Chris? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah. um, So my final thought, it's totally out of left field. Um, uh, (laughs) Just like my thesis this whole podcast. But um, yeah, so I just, I really wanted to say that uh, Wally is one of the greatest movies <laughs> of all time. And if you haven't watched it in a while, now would be the perfect time to pull out your Disney Plus subscription, fire it up, and watch it from the beginning. Uh, Craig is showing me right now his, his Wally figurine. Right. I am completely enamored with it. Uh, but Wally is just, it's a movie with a lot of heart. I don't think enough people appreciate the genius that is that film. That is awesome. And on that note, we want to thank you. If you're still here with us, like you're a super fan and we appreciate you you hanging out with us the whole time. We want to thank, say thanks to all of our sponsors, Idea Blade, Ionic, Narwhal, and AG Grid. And thanks for joining us here every Thursday on WebRush. Rush.